Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. I want to welcome you to our program and to our live broadcast here on Facebook, YouTube, our podcast, broadcasting out to Twitch and Periscope as well. Here on this channel, each week we provide teachings about Gautama Buddha that led to the mental state of enlightenment. Gautama Buddha, living 2,500 years ago, shared teachings that will guide you through training the mind to attain this enlightened mental state, which is peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, where the mind no longer experiences discontent feelings. And here on this channel, on Sunday at 9 p.m. and Wednesday at 9 p.m., I share those teachings through a live class session that you can interact with. We are nine weeks into the current version of this group learning program. And we typically will teach chanting on today. We either do breathing, mindfulness meditation, loving kindness meditation, or Buddhist chanting. And it's oftentimes that these practice sessions, not only do we do meditation or chanting, but also students will many times have various questions and things that they need help with in terms of learning the teachings and practicing those teachings, bringing them into their daily life. So now that we're nine weeks into this program and students have been studying for a little over two months, we're about 30%, 35% of the way through this program. I thought it would be a good time to just kind of reserve the first part of this session to open up the floor to student discussion and allow any questions that you guys have, whether it's on this week's chapter, which is chapter nine, what is gamma and how does it affect me, or any of the other chapters that we've been covering throughout the entire group learning program and using this book, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Nibbana. So if you have any questions on the content of any of the talks that we've done previously or anything that you've been observing on the internet or anything that you've heard and talking with people, anything that's coming up in your meditation practice, anything that you're experiencing or you would like help in, I would just like to open the floor to all the students to ask questions. So for now, over the next hour or so, I would like to just open the floor to all of you. And then once we're done taking questions and getting answers to any questions that you're having, then we'll move into introducing Buddhist chanting to you and helping you learn that more closely. So with that said, I'll go ahead and turn the floor over to Max in order to ask any questions that have come in. Hi, David. Well, I'd like to kick things off and just follow up on something you mentioned on 
Sunday. I think it was to the effect of the path is essentially about awakening to the natural law of karma. And the mind is always operating off what it knows. So even when we're making unwholesome decisions, it's because on some level we, we think that's the way to become content at that time. But then I'm wondering, still, we do sometimes make decisions that we, we know aren't really in our best interest. So can you, can you explain why we sometimes do things that we know are, are against our best interest, but we just do them anyway? Sure. You know, this is where the unenlightened mind doesn't always necessarily know what's right or wrong. Or in the case that you're describing is we kind of know it's wrong, but we make the decision anyway. And this still, I feel, relates back to we don't fully understand what it is that we're actually doing sometimes. Other times, the mind can be somewhat complacent and thinking that oh, I won't hurt me that much. Let me just kind of dabble with it. Or in some cases, the mind hasn't really had enough experience to understand the decisions that it's making is in fact quite dangerous and quite problematic for us in our life. Taking substances that cause heedlessness, for example, this is something that we've been taught all our life that you know this is something that we shouldn't partake in and that it can be problematic, but people don't really explain, you know, all the different problems that can arise from it. So as we grow up, a lot of us will tend to kind of dabble in substances that cause heedlessness because we want to kind of experience, you know, and it's almost kind of thrilling and it's kind of like a pleasant feeling and exciting to do something that maybe our parents or our caregivers have told us not to do. So it's that pleasure seeking again, right? Seeking that excitement, that craving, that desire, chasing after something, wanting to experience it. And it's not until we actually have some pretty bad experiences that it might change our opinion of these substances. Sometimes with things like substances too, it can also be social pressure or a need to kind of fit in or kind of wanting to fit in. So if we have friends and companions and associates who are into substances, for example, then if we associate with those kind of people, then our mind will tend to kind of lean in that direction, either because of the social pressure or pressure we place on ourselves to fit in. And this is one of the teachings that Gautama Buddha gave us is he explained to us that it's very wise to make decisions about our friends, our associates, our uh, comrades and things like this to ensure that the relationships that we're having are good, wholesome relationships with people that are doing wholesome things, wholesome activities. Because if we hang around people with lots of ego and disparaging others with hatred and uh, discrimination or people that use substances that cause heedlessness, not that we're judging these people as I've shared many times in the past, but what you'll notice is if you choose to be in groups or hang around people like this, then your mind is going to tend to lean towards those things. Even if you know that they're unwholesome things and unwholesome activities, your mind will more easily kind of lean in that direction towards these unwholesome things because everyone else is doing it. Why not? And conversely, what the Buddha talked about is that if we pick good companions, good comrades, good associates, then our mind is going to lean towards enlightenment and having a good, wholesome life because our life practice is going to be good and wholesome. 
So it's important as part of your gamma, right, the results of your decisions, because gamma is cause and effect, action and result, the result of your decisions. One of the decisions or many decisions that you can make is choosing good, wholesome people to be around that are into good, wholesome activities. Not because you're judging other people, looking down on them or considering them bad, but with discernment, with wise decision making, choose to involve people in your life and choose to be involved in other people's lives that are doing good, wholesome things. And what you'll notice is that your mind will lean towards good, wholesome activities. And this will be your gamma. This will be the result of your decisions. Where conversely, if you choose to be around things that are going on unwholesome or people that are into unwholesome activities, then what you're going to find is your mind's going to lean towards that. So making good, wholesome decisions about your friends, about your colleagues, about your life partner, about people that you involve in your life, about certain groups that you join and participate in as part of your groups, because this is going to help you to make good, wholesome decisions because those people that are into good, wholesome things, if they see you walking down a path, they might kind of even suggest to you, hey, you know, that's not such a wise decision where oftentimes if we're involved around other unwholesome activities, the general feeling is like, let's go out and do all these unwholesome things. And that's kind of where the group moves towards. And you can find yourself in a whole lot of trouble if you end up being part of groups and organizations that are into those kind of things. So to answer your question, you know, there's lots of different reasons, Max, why we in the unenlightened state make decisions that are otherwise unwholesome for us. Part of it is because of craving anger and ignorance, the self and the ego, that's a huge part of it. But there's also this social pressure and that's kind of part of the ignorance, right? Is rather than kind of viewing this as an independent practice that we need to make good, wholesome choices and it's our choices that affect our life with this ignorance or unknowing of true reality that gets carried around in the unenlightened mind. We oftentimes are just like, oh, I just want to fit in or I just want a couple of friends. You know, I want a couple of friends, which is craving. I just want to fit in. I want to fit in, which is craving. I just want this pleasure seeking, which is craving. And because of this ignorance, it moves in the direction of making unwholesome decisions rather than sticking to what we know is good and wholesome. Because initially it feels kind of tough to make a lot of good, wholesome decisions. It can feel kind of cumbersome, especially if you're not used to it. It can feel like, gosh, you know, you've lived 30, 40 years in this certain way and now making these good, wholesome decisions, you need to learn, you need to understand. It's not your normal way of making decisions. You've got to train your mind. It's like training an animal. It's a bit challenging. And sometimes we can become complacent in that. And what a wise practitioner is going to do who really has their sights set on enlightenment is not cave to the social pressure, is understand craving, anger, ignorance, the self and the ego, eradicate all that stuff through this training and just really stay focused on the goal with good, wholesome friends and colleagues and life partners and people around you and create this life for yourself that's moving in the direction of this enlightened mental state.
you've often reminded me, David, that it's a case of gradual training. I've noticed this in my own practice, for example, in giving up eating meat, which I knew was a wholesome decision to stop eating meat. And yet at the same time, I knew that if I just cut it off the moment I realized that, not only would I find it very difficult, but actually in the long term, it might have produced a less wholesome outcome. Because what I found is that by gradually tapering off what I was eating and initially just eating less meat and then eating no meat, but still eating fish and then cutting that out as well a couple of months later, I found that actually here I am, best part of a year down the line from stopping eating meat and actually have no craving to go and eat meat. But I compare that back to when I was a teenager, I actually did attempt to give up meat back then as well. And on that occasion, I was only able to keep it up for, I think, six weeks or so before. Uh, and actually, and there's another factor here, which was intoxicants, because there, there were intoxicants involved. I was drinking with a couple of friends. And on that occasion, we ordered some food. And you know, I, I thought, OK, I made it six weeks, gave it a go. And so because it was such a sudden cutoff, and also because of this other decision I made to, to drink with my friends, that then uh, caused a, I, I, I relapsed essentially. And so do you feel that sometimes we, we make these decisions because we just, you mentioned craving there, we want something so badly, but also on the other hand, we, we're experiencing such pain if we don't have it that sometimes we need to have it just to make the process more manageable. And so even though we know that thing is on its way out, we may actually decide to have it in smaller doses on the way to make it more sustainable. Yeah, one of the things that you're cluing into there, Max, is as someone chooses to eliminate certain cravings, individual cravings, like your example of meat or substances that cause heedlessness, the mind remember the mind doesn't like impermanence it likes permanence it likes to hold on to things and when you start stripping away these cravings when you start letting go of these desire this attachment those mental longing with a strong eagerness the mind will become discontent the mind doesn't like it because the mind craves that permanence so when you start introducing impermanence and you start pulling it away from the meat or the substances that cause heedlessness, or you know, you name it, anything that you're attached to, anything that you're having this mental longing and strong eagerness for, a girlfriend, a boyfriend, uh, certain clothing, certain habits, certain foods, whatever it is, as you're pulling the mind away, the mind becomes discontent, sad, anger, frustrated, irritable, annoyed. And the tendency for the mind is to go back to that because it thinks that's what's going to make it peaceful. It thinks that that's what's going to get rid of the discontentedness. And if the mind thinks, the unenlightened mind thinks that if I just latch back onto this meat, or if I just latch back onto this substance that calls heedlessness, or I just latch back onto this girlfriend or boyfriend that has been a very horrible relationship perhaps, then if I just hold on, it will be okay. And that's what the mind's doing with craving is it's grasping and holding on. And it thinks that as long as it holds on to this thing, that it will feel okay. And it's all, and that's the solution. But what you don't realize in the unenlightened state is that pulling away and feeling that discontentedness 
you have to go through that uncomfortable feeling of eliminating that attachment in order to get to the other side. And the other side is where the mind is actually liberated and it no longer holds on and is grasping for this. So, for example, if you've been in a bad relationship with somebody or even if it was a somewhat good relationship and it even ended on good terms and you separated for any number of reasons, maybe just moved to the other side of the country and it ended pleasantly. But when two people move to the other side of the country or if there's an argument or whatever, the mind can become sad and lonely and depressed or bored. And what often happens is the mind immediately wants to latch on to another relationship. And it feels like if it just latches on to a new relationship, then that's what it really needs to satisfy the mind and eliminate this boredom, loneliness, you know, this frustration, this irritation or anger that it's experiencing from having eliminated and moving away from this attachment of this other person. So oftentimes the mind will, we call this a rebound, right? A rebounding relationship where the mind wants another girlfriend, another boyfriend right away. And then you latch onto that person. And then that relationship ends at some point because it gets smothered and sabotaged. And now when that relationship's over, the mind wants to latch onto another relationship where if what you did instead on this path to enlightenment, recognizing that you have this attachment, this craving desire, this mental longing with a strong eagerness for this close affection and having a partner, when you pull away and this relationship's over and you feel the boredom, loneliness, sadness, anger, whatever, the better thing for you to do is work on eliminating that because that mental longing that you're having for that person and putting your pleasure and putting your happiness and your excitement and elation into another person, that craving is the real problem. So when the mind latches on to another person, the mind thinks it's solving the problem, but in reality, it's making the problem worse because now you've just latched onto somebody else and now you're gonna crush that relationship and that relationship's gonna end as well. It's going to be impermanent because everything is going to become more and more discontent. As long as there's this craving, desire, attachment, there's going to keep being discontentedness. So when you find yourself having separated from a relationship and you find your mind sad or angry, frustrated, irritated, lonely, bored, what have you, a wise practitioner would spend that time alone and train the mind to let go, let go of that other person and focus inwardly to train the mind and find the inner peacefulness, the inner contentedness, the inner calmness, the inner sereneness, and the inner joy. Because once you're fulfilled inwardly, now if you have a boyfriend or a girlfriend or you don't, the mind is still inwardly fulfilled. Whereas if the mind only feels happiness, whenever it's in a relationship with somebody, then what's going to happen is you're going to bounce around from relationship to relationship, continuing to sabotage all your relationships because this craving desire attachment is going to keep holding on and it's going to keep causing discontentedness and you're going to keep smothering and sabotaging these relationships. So it's better to step back, spend the time alone, eliminate this attachment for always being with a partner 
train the mind, look for the inner fulfillment. And now once the mind is inwardly fulfilled, it can be content alone or with a partner. Now you're a very good partner because you're not putting all the significance, all the weight on your partner's shoulders to make you happy. Instead, you're already inwardly fulfilled. So therefore, when you do connect with a partner and you are in a relationship, you're inwardly fulfilled with them or without them, and you're not going to crush and sabotage this relationship. But back to your question is going through that can feel very painful when you separate from a relationship, i.e. you're starting to work on eliminating the craving, desire, attachment for this person, for intimacy, for the type of activities that you guys once did together. When you separate from choosing to eat meat, when you separate from substances that cause heedlessness, anytime you're trying to eliminate attachment, it is oftentimes somewhat painful. And that's normal. That's a normal part of the process because the mind is trying to hold on and hold on and hold on. And you've got to just stick with it, be dedicated to it, have confidence in the Buddhist teachings and have confidence that once you get to the other side of this attachment, that's where the real liberation occurs. Because as long as you have this craving, desire, attachment in the mind for all these different things, now your mind can be shaken up. Now your mind can experience discontentedness because you have this craving, desire, attachment. It's lurching out and trying to hold on to this external happiness. And when it doesn't get it, the mind is shaken up and it becomes angry, sad, frustrated, irritable, annoyed, lonely, bored, what have you. But when you get to the other side of these cravings and you no longer are seeking outward satisfaction, but you're inwardly fulfilled, that's when the mind is liberated because it doesn't need any one particular thing or another in order to create that inner fulfillment, that peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy is just always there because the mind isn't lurching out for all these conditioned experiences in order to create this inner fulfillment. It's already inwardly fulfilled without all this external stuff. So yeah, going through and releasing these attachments can be very painful sometimes. And you can feel the most miserable you've ever felt in your entire life. And if you feel that way, going through eliminating some of these attachments, then you know it's a really deep attachment. You know that it's a attachment that's been holding on and it's really, really deep. And the more miserable you feel, it should be extra motivation to get to the other side of this. Because if you keep holding on to this attachment, then the mind's going to keep feeling so miserable. doesn't mean you can't ever have a boyfriend or a girlfriend, but it just means you need to train the mind to not put your happiness in the hands of other people and that you look for inner fulfillment. So if you're feeling really miserable or you're feeling even a little bit of ickiness as you let go of some of these attachments, it's completely normal and use it as a motivation of, man, I need to get to the other side of this because this just feels completely uncomfortable. When I was going through releasing some of these attachments, I got to the point sometimes where I would feel nauseous, like I was going to literally vomit. That's how it made me feel experiencing this breaking away and this letting go 
this elimination of these craving desires attachments. And I use that as motivation because I didn't like that feeling. I didn't like that miserable feeling in the mind and I didn't like that miserable feeling in the stomach, in the body that I felt nauseous. And because this week we're talking about gamma, this is or that was my gamma because I allowed the mind to hold on and have this craving desire attachment that was choices that I made to hold on to certain craving desires attachments as I was letting them go feeling that miserable feeling and that nauseous and feeling like I'm going to vomit that was my gamma but then making the good wholesome choice to stick with this path being dedicated to it and get to the other side now the mind is peaceful calm serene and content with joy it no longer feels discontentedness so therefore that's my gamma because i made the choice to stick with the path continue the training and keep pushing forward and moving forward on this path so now there's nothing that's going to shake up my mind in any regard whatsoever so that's now my gamma for making those good wholesome choices so going back to these cravings desires attachment it's an unwholesome choice that's going to lead to unwholesome results for you. I remember a while back asking you about this and I understood that, well, of course, all our discontentedness is caused by our attachments, but not only that, all of our attachments will cause discontentedness at some point. So you know, walking the path is really about eliminating our attachments. And when we first encounter these teachings, it's not uncommon to, to feel like, yes, like, hey, I, I, this is something I need, to, this, this is really what I need to sort my life out. And we may get a false sense of this journey always being pleasant and easy and nice. And it's not that because every time we release an attachment, there's going to be this discontentedness with it. However, I feel there's a big difference between discontentedness we experience when we don't know what's going on and we're just in a cloud of confusion, jumping from coping mechanism to coping mechanism, not wondering why our life is so challenging versus discontentedness we feel when we know it's because we're releasing from something and we know it's impermanent and all we've got to do is get through it and we know because we've experienced it before that what's on the other side of that is peace acceptance liberation and once it's gone it's gone yeah so when we normally talk about these teachings through the four noble truths we talk about in that second noble truth how craving desire attachment causes discontentedness so we kind of approach it from the side of craving that causes discontentedness and that's kind of like moving into the teachings but one of the things that you're cluing into is sometimes to get out of these cravings desires attachments it starts with discontentedness at this particular time you probably aren't aware of all the different cravings, desires, attachments that you have as a practitioner. And one of the things that can bring craving, desire, attachment to your attention is when you experience discontentedness. So to kind of self-diagnose or self-prescribe what's going on here in your mind is if you know that all craving, desire, attachment leads to discontentedness, that means that anytime the mind is discontent, anytime, it's always caused by craving desire attachment. 
So you might be just going throughout your day, everything's fine, you think the sun's shining and everything's beautiful, and well, wham, you get hit with sadness, or boredom, or loneliness, or happiness, and excitement, or jealousy, or resentment. Whatever comes into the mind, when you experience that discontentedness, you might not even realize why, it's just well, wham because we're oftentimes very unaware of what's going on in the mind in the unenlightened state. We don't have that mindfulness developed yet, that awareness of mind. So when you experience that discontentedness, when the discontentedness arises, you can use it through reflection and self-diagnosis to now figure out what are my craving, desire, attachments that led to this discontentedness. Because you know through the third noble truth that your goal is to eliminate craving, desire, attachment. Well, how could you eliminate them if you didn't know what they were? So discontentedness is your gamma because the mind is craving, desire, and having attachment. So when you experience that gamma, remember I talked on Sunday how gamma is the very best unbiased teacher right? It's unbiased. So when you experience that discontentedness, whether it's sadness, anger, frustration, irritation, boredom, loneliness, guilt, shame, fear, happiness, excitement, elation, when you experience those painful feelings, pleasant feelings, or feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant, rather than look somewhere else externally to blame somebody for who caused this, you already know the answer. It's craving, desire, attachment that's caused it. It's your mind that has this mental longing and strong eagerness. So you've got to look inward and see. You've got to self-diagnose. You've got to reflect. What is it that's causing this discontentedness? Because you know it's something in your mind. And when you can evolve your practice to this level, you can pretty quickly start chipping away at these attachments. But if we're just going through life in the unenlightened state, just without awareness of mind, without applying any effort to eliminate the discontentedness, with blaming other people for our discontentedness, you have no hope of ever eliminating the discontent mind. But if you've got right view and you accept responsibility for your discontent mind, and you're learning all the rest of this path, which includes awareness of mind, right mindfulness, and right effort, which is taking the effort to eliminate unwholesome qualities and bring in wholesome qualities. Whenever you see unwholesome qualities arise, whenever you see discontentedness arise, right away, it should be breaks on, let me look and see what are the craving, desire, attachments that are causing this. And oftentimes at the beginning of the path, it's more than one. It can be multiple things in the mind. And if you're having trouble discovering this, that's where you reach out to your teacher through a private chat or a private video session or posting in the Facebook group or asking questions here in, t in the online classes where you say, I'm experiencing this discontentedness. Here's the situation and I don't understand what craving, desire, attachments are leading to this discontentedness? Teacher, can you help me? And if I do that with you over a few situations where your mind has become discontent, then you will get very good 
at discovering these for yourself so that you build that skill and that ability. Meditation is the primary practice that you really need in order to train the mind, in order to attain enlightenment. But the second best skill that you could ever have on this path is being able to identify your attachments because you need to be able to independently do that. And if you can't do that yet, it's a skill and ability that you need to identify and you need to develop. Because if you don't develop this skill and ability, then how could you ever eliminate any attachments if you can't identify them? So anytime you see discontentedness arise, immediately look inward and try to discover what are the attachments, what are the cravings, what are the desire, where is the mental longing that is causing this discontent mind? And when you can get to that level of practice, approaching this path to enlightenment is almost fun. There's been times in the past where my mind used to become discontent and I would be discontent in three minutes, five minutes. I'm, Hold on. What is that? I don't want that anger. What is that? And I start laughing at myself like, why are you so angry? This is silly. Stop being angry. And I would just kind of look in the mind and just kind of think about it. Ah, you silly ego. What are you doing in there? Get out of here. Or, oh, you silly this, you silly that. You want that? Okay, get out of here. So you can almost have fun with it when you start really seeing this stuff very clearly. And you've got to be able to see it really clearly like that as you move on closer and closer. So you've got to understand the Four Noble Truths and understand that all craving, desire, attachment leads to discontentedness and that you can eliminate the discontentedness by eliminating the attachment. But then anytime the mind's discontent, look inward and try to figure out what is the craving desire attachments or what are they there's probably many actually all right thanks so david i have another question and i just know why we sometimes feel so tired or exhausted and empty during our day or, or at the end of the day can this be explained through the buddha's teachings yes so oftentimes as you're either not on this path at all and not even understanding the teachings, haven't ever been exposed to them, or even if you've been exposed to them and you're working through the teachings and you're kind of in the beginning or middle part of this path, you can get to a point in your day where you're fairly exhausted. The mind's very tired, exhausted, depleted, even feeling empty by the end of the day. And this is quite normal for someone whose mind is not on the path, has no idea of this path whatsoever. But even at the beginning or kind of middle part of the path, when you're doing a whole lot of work to bring your practice up closer and closer to the ideal of the Eightfold Path, what's happening here is the mind is burdened with this craving, anger, ignorance, the self and the ego. The mind runs around day to day to day to day chasing all these cravings, right? People put together a big long to-do list, not necessarily interested in doing each thing individually with any amount of good quality necessarily, but just bouncing around from thing to thing to thing to thing to thing to thing to thing, to thing rather than slowing the mind down and just taking it easy and working through your goals and objectives for the day. So this craving, desire, attachment, this mental longing with a strong eagerness will push the mind. It'll push and push and push and push and push and push. 
to the point where you could feel very tired, exhausted, depleted, and empty at the end of the day. So craving causes this, but also hatred, anger, ill will. Going around and being angry, going around having hatred and ill will is quite exhausting, right? Looking out for enemies around you with a neurotic mind, creating these walls. These people I don't want to associate with. I'm only going to talk to these people. Oh, you said that about me? I don't agree. I'm pushing you away, right? This is very exhausting for the mind. And hatred, anger, ill will causes it to be tired, exhausted, depleted, and empty. Having this ignorance of unknowing of true reality, not having the wisdom of how to make good, wholesome decisions in your life, very seamless. The mind struggles and struggles and struggles over some of the simplest little problems that we have in life. The mind will oftentimes struggle to find an answer and that causes it to be exhausted, tired, depleted and empty. Carrying around this self, always trying to protect the self and always looking out for who's stepping on the self or who's stepping on the ego, who's affecting the ego and having to defend the self in the ego. This can be very exhausting to a person who's not on the path or a person who's just started the path. So when you lay down the burden of carrying the craving, anger, and ignorance or unknowing of true reality, the self and the ego, the mind has this wisdom permeating all throughout the mind where you can seamlessly and fluidly make decisions so fluidly and everything moves very slow, but you're able to make such good decisions all the time and they're all very wholesome decisions. So only wholesome things are happening to come back to you. So life, as you get closer and closer to the enlightened mental state, becomes easier and easier because you've got this wisdom in which to make really good, seamless, smooth decisions and you've laid down the burden of this craving, anger, ignorance, the self and the ego. You'll probably find the closer and closer you get to enlightenment, you won't have to sleep as much. You know, there was periods in my life where I was sleeping for 12, 14, 16 hours a day based on all the things that I was involved in. That's the burden that the mind carries and it needs that level of sleep in order to replenish itself and repair itself. But when your mind is in the middle, when it's practicing these teachings and you've ramped up the teachings and your mind is in the middle, it's performing optimally. Like we talked about with that sitar, when the string is too loose and you pluck it, it's like, right? You got to do some work to tune up that string. Or if the string is too tight and you pluck the string of the instrument, bing, now you got to do some work to tune it up. But when your mind is tuned perfectly in the middle and it stays that way permanently all the time, you can just play the music. You can just enjoy the beautiful music and the beautiful life because you don't have to do any work to tune the instrument because you've already tuned it. But it's going to take many months and many years for you to eliminate this craving, anger, ignorance, the self and the ego. It's going to take you time to eliminate these 10 fetters that need to be eliminated to attain enlightenment. It's going to take you time to build up your practice 
on the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, the Five Precepts, and all the others, but that's like tuning your instrument. You take all this time to tune the instrument, and it can become fun at different periods. You take all this time to tune the instrument, but then once the instrument's tuned, it's perfectly tuned, it's permanent, it's in the middle, and you can just enjoy playing music all the time. You never have to tune the instrument, other than what you're going to be doing in order to meditate daily, just to kind of, that's part of your practice now, is you're just always going to be meditating. But your instrument is really well-tuned, performing optimally, and you'll see that you'll actually sleep less. So we run around doing all this burdensome activity because we think we're getting all this stuff done, but then the mind becomes really tired, exhausted, depleted, and empty. So now we've got to spend all this time to sleep and recoup. But now when we wake up, we feel like we got to get, hurry up and get all this stuff done because we've got so many things on our list. So it's like a downward spiral. But if you slow things down and you just make one decision at a time, good, wholesome decisions, you build up your practice, you fine tune this instrument, now you're actually going to be doing things one at a time, all making very good, wholesome decisions. So wholesome things are coming back to you. And now you're going to be sleeping less and less and less. So now you've got more time in your day, whether it's to spend time by yourself, whether it's to go out to the park, whether it's to do some favorite activity that you enjoy, whether it's being with your family or friends, whatever it is, as the mind becomes more tuned optimally, there's going to be less sleep and therefore you're going to have more time in your day. The unenlightened mind thinks that you've got to get all this stuff done and you just got to get all this stuff done. You got to get all this stuff done and you got to do two, three, four, five things at one time and the unenlightened mind thinks that's the way to get through this life. But that's going to lead to misery. That's going to lead to a miserable existence. By slowing things down, taking them one at a time, you're actually going to get more accomplished. You're going to make better decisions. They're going to be wiser decisions that lead to better, more wholesome results. And you're going to get more time in your day because the sleep is going to get less and less, which means you have more time to do everything and anything that you want in your life. And you're going to be much more productive in your daily activities, however you choose to devote your time on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, something I've noticed is that I have basically no challenges getting out of bed in the morning these days, which is very nice because when I compare that to how I was several years ago when I was working a job that I felt very uncomfortable doing, it wasn't like I wasn't sleeping enough at the time. I was still getting perhaps eight hours of sleep usually, and yet I had to really pry myself out of bed in the morning. And I wasn't sure if it was because the mind's working more optimally or whether it's because I've been making better decisions regarding my livelihood. Maybe it's kind of the same thing. Maybe making better decisions is part of the mind working more optimally. But interested to hear your reflections on that, David. Yeah, so that's another thing that happens in the unenlightened mind is that when it's time to wake up, whether it's by an alarm, it can feel like a real drag to get out of bed. It's like a real struggle because, gosh, we don't even want to face this world, right? That can be a pretty miserable life when you don't even want to get out of bed to face the world. 
And that's because the mind is struggling so much in this world with craving, anger, ignorance, the self, and the ego. And what you'll find is the more that you practice these teachings, you train the mind, it comes to the middle, performing more optimally with this focus, concentration, deep memory, clarity of thought, the mind's more and more peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. Getting out of bed is like enjoyable. It's like, all right, I got another day. What am I going to do today? And you don't feel this big drag to get out of bed. And you, it, you, it's almost wonderful. Like, wow, I'm awake. All right, let's go. Like, what's happening? And <clears throat> the mind's going to be performing more optimally. So, yes, it's because of making better decisions. That's your karma. Because you've chosen over the last year and a half and then even before I met you, you were you were meditating, but you didn't really have any life practice to go with it. And you weren't really meditating the way that the Buddha taught. So for five years, you were just kind of dabbling and building up a habit. So that's why once you and I connected and you started learning the real true teachings of the Buddha and you had the time in your life to do that, you were able to progress uh, relatively smoothly because you already had your habit built up of meditating for five years. So making those good wholesome choices to come learn the teachings to dedicate time effort and energy to learn them practice them implement them in your life those good decisions to meditate every day and i know i think you're up to like three times of meditating today um or now each day i think you meditate three times a day just about so all those good wholesome decisions that you've made over the last year and a half have led to this wholesome gamma that's being returned to you. You're probably seeing more concentration. You're probably seeing more focus, more better memory. You're probably seeing more clarity of thought. Yes, you already said it's easier to get out of bed each day. It's like super easy where before it was kind of tough. You may even notice that you're sleeping less. You may even be noticing that when you're around people, you no longer have like social anxiety or awkwardness of being around people because you just know how to be polite and kind, respectful, friendly, and it just is like almost becoming seamless at this point because you've devoted the last year and a half to really diving in in a deep way into these teachings. So all these results that you're experiencing are from your own wholesome decisions. And this is why Gautama Buddha's teachings are not based on belief. I talk about that at different times in this program and as I teach that there is no belief in these teachings. It's all about learning and practicing the teachings so that you can see the truth for yourself as you train the mind. And this is how you know that you've been learning and practicing the truth because the condition of the mind is improving. It's becoming more optimal. It's functioning in a better way. Your life is gradually improving slowly but surely. You're not just believing a bunch of things and hoping that when you die that your beliefs were correct and you go to a good or a bad place. That's not what these teachings are about. What these teachings are about is it's about learning and practicing the teachings right now, seeing the truth, gaining that wisdom, and then right now you see the condition of the mind improving. And that's how you know you're on the right path. And all of these things are working because like you're saying, your sleep schedule, I think you said it's getting shorter, it's easier to get out of bed, and you're having all these beneficial results because of it. Yeah, and so draw on my own experience a little bit here, because I think this is 
probably true for most people, although I can't say that for sure, but I knew there was a problem, right? I was experiencing a lot of discontentedness, but I wasn't necessarily sure what was causing it. I thought I just had to go to work and go to you know, after work drinks and, you know, and you're in this environment where there's a lot of anger, there's a lot of craving. And I didn't understand what was causing my own discontentedness at the time. And understanding the teachings now has given me the tools to, to see that and therefore make better decisions. But I think we often you know, go about life, get involved in these, these things, these pursuits, these organizations, and not realizing that we're gonna bear some unwholesome results from that. And so encountering the teachings has allowed me to make better decisions around how I'm spending my time as well, which has only helped improve the state of mind. Yeah, and here we're starting to talk about some of the benefits of attaining enlightenment, right? And there's all these mental benefits that I talk about, that focus, concentration, deep memory, clarity of thought, this peaceful, calm, serene, content mind with joy, having better personal and professional relationships, and so on and so forth. There's even things that you'll notice, you might actually not notice it yourself, but other people may, is that as the mind moves closer and closer to performing with this optimal performance, i.e. the mind is moving closer and closer to enlightenment, it's awakening. Some other things that people will notice around you, and you may notice as well, is that the skin becomes more vibrant, it becomes more bright, it becomes more healthy, the eyes become more bright, people smile more, right? They look more pleasant in their face. This is why people call Thailand the land of smiles. Have you guys ever heard that? That they call Thailand the land of smiles? Well, a lot of people call Thailand the land of smiles, but they don't know why. The reason why is because you've got all these people that are practicing Gautama Buddha's teachings. When you know the truth and you have wisdom and your life is peaceful, calm, serene and content with joy and your mind is peaceful, calm, serene and content with joy, you go around smiling a whole lot. And it's really easy to put a smile on your face because everything's wonderful, right? So one of the other things that people will notice as you learn and practice these, and I certainly noticed this about you, Max, after almost about a year of you practicing, is I noticed that your skin became more smooth, uh, it became more bright, it became more shiny, and you smiled more. And this is something that is as a result of learning and practicing Gautama Buddha's teachings. So it's great that Thailand is the land of smiles, but why is it just Thailand the land of smiles? Why can't it be the world of smiles? Right? Why can't the whole world be smiling? So the more that the entire world learns and practices these teachings, it won't just be that Thailand is the land of smiles, as there's some kind of contrast between Thailand and the rest of the world. But in fact, we can create this heaven on earth where the entire world is a land of smiles. That would be the goal. And you'll see some of these kind of attributes of the physical appearance that will improve. Bright skin, brighter eyes, easier to smile. Uh, you'll feel the body's more light. It's not so heavy. It's not like a burden to carry around. When you've got all that craving, anger, and ignorance in the mind, it's quite a heavy burden to carry around, lots of stress, and the body can feel very heavy. I remember times when my feet just used to feel so heavy, like big boulders on my feet, like I couldn't even walk. I was dragging so much. 
But as your mind starts to perform very optimally, you won't have those experiences. So you'll feel those physical changes in the body as you progress with these teachings. Yes, another thing I've noticed is that it, it seems a lot easier to know what the body needs. So it's not as though you don't need to, you know, or you don't want food sometimes, for example, but you don't feel the need to overeat as much. You don't feel the need to oversleep as much. And if there is a bit of the tiredness, it's not really much of a problem. You just, you just look at, oh, okay, maybe I'll just try and get to bed a bit early tonight. But it doesn't really bother the mind. And I think as a result of that, you tend to be able to find that middle of what your body needs a bit more easily. Yeah, I used to do that a lot. I used to sometimes sleep 8, 10, 12 hours and wake up grumpy, right? You guys have probably experienced that. Or you were planning to sleep 8, 10, 12 hours and you got less than that. And then you wake up and you're grumpy and irritable. And now you walk around talking negatively to people around you, creating all kinds of more unwholesome gamma. So it's like this downward spiral. So someone who's on this path, remember that this natural law of gamma, it exists and it's always on just like gravity. You don't turn gravity on and off. It's always on. So if you didn't get your sleep that you were expecting to get or you wanted to get or you were craving to get, that doesn't mean you wake up and be angry, hostile, grumpy and irritable to people around you because now you're just creating more unwholesome gamma for yourself. That's still craving anger, ignorance, the self and the ego. So even when you wake up or even you didn't sleep at all for an entire night because you were sick and you were miserable in bed, don't use that as an excuse to go around and talk negatively to people in hostile. You've got to realize that this natural law of gamma is always on. Talk polite, talk kind, talk friendly. Or if you just can't be around people and you would rather be by yourself because you don't want to create any unwholesome gamma, that's a wise choice. If you know your mind's irritable and if you're around people, it's not going to turn out well, a wise choice using discernment, a wise decision would be just stay by yourself that day and make sure that you're not talking badly to people because that's going to cause unwholesome gamma. So we have to realize that at all times, everywhere we go, everything we do, this natural law of gamma is always there. It's always on. So even when you wake up and you didn't get as much sleep as you intended or you're hungry, I remember I used to do this a lot. Like if I was really hungry, I would get irritable and I would kind of lash out, you know, like an animal, people around me. And that's all creating unwholesome gamma. So what you've got to do with the mind is when you wake up and you realize you only got four hours of sleep when you expected eight, you got to realize, okay, sleep is impermanent. I'm not always going to get the amount of sleep that I want. I'll either take a nap later today or... I'll get some more sleep tonight. But today, I've got to go through my day and still practice this eightfold path or else I'm going to be causing unwholesome gamma. Just because you had four hours of sleep, don't use that as an excuse to now be irritable to people. Or if you're in a situation where you're hungry and you're feeling the hunger arise and maybe you even have some hunger pains in the stomach. Don't use that as an excuse to be hostile and angry to people because you're creating unwholesome gamma. Recognize in the mind that this hunger pain is impermanent. So right now the body wants food, but 
that's impermanent. You know, you can stop and get a snack somewhere or you can get extra food wherever you get where you're going. It's only going to be another 15 minutes or it's only going to be another 30 minutes and you can give the body food. But if that 15 minutes or 30 minutes is you talking rough to your children, to your life partner, to your uh, colleagues and your uh, co-workers, you're just going to be creating unwholesome gamma for yourself. So it's better to recognize that that hunger or that sleepiness, it's all impermanent and just make good, wise choices to stay on your practice, the eightfold path, stay on that practice. And is it right, David, that a fully enlightened being is able to remain content in any and all situations, no matter how hungry they are, no matter how tired they are, they're still going to make decisions that generally wouldn't put themselves in those situations, but they would also understand that that can't be fully controlled necessarily. There are going to be times perhaps when there's no food available, when they don't sleep as much as they would choose to if they could, and yet in those situations they're still able to remain content. But for anyone who's on the path, it's not about pretending you're fully enlightened, right? It's about making good, wholesome decisions to protect your contentedness whilst training the mind to a place where that would eventually be possible. Right, exactly. An enlightened being, if the body has hunger, their mind is not going to be discontent because they recognize it as impermanent and they're just going to make decisions in order to get the food because they know it's unwise for them to arise any discontentedness in the mind. It's impossible for an enlightened being to experience discontentedness, but they've trained their mind to the point that they have eliminated all discontentedness, but they would never experience discontentedness because of hunger or because of a lack of sleep or even pain, physical pain, where you have a significant injury to the physical body. The enlightened mind is still going to remain peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. It will no longer ever experience discontentedness again under any situation. However, while you're on this path, you're going to experience discontentedness all the way and up until you attain complete enlightenment. So what you can do is if you know that the goal is to eliminate discontentedness 100%, eliminate those painful, pleasant, neither painful nor pleasant feelings, recognize that hunger, recognize it as impermanent. Sure, your stomach's hurting, but don't allow that to come into your speech and your actions, right? Sure, you didn't get that much sleep. You wish you would have gotten more sleep last night, but don't allow that to come into your speech and your actions because that's where it's gonna start causing harm to the people around you and that's just gonna come back to you. So anytime you're in a situation where you feel discontentedness starting to arise, that's where you've gotta cut it off. That's that right effort. And if you've done breathing mindfulness meditation enough where every time a thought of the past or the future or ideas or perceptions come into your mind, you let it go, you let it go, you let it go. That training in breathing mindfulness meditation over a long period of time is training the mind so that in daily life, when that hunger arises and you feel the mind, right? You have that awareness of the mind where, oh, there's that hunger, oh, and your tendency might be to kind of lash out to somebody you got to cut that off. That's the right effort. And the more and more that you do that and you train the mind in that direction, 
the mind's going to have less and less of a tendency for that to occur. But during this period of time where the mind's transitioning from the unenlightened state to the enlightened state, you're still going to experience this discontentedness. And it's only when you do the work, when you do the meditation, when you do the learning and the practice of these teachings, when you do the work in the moment to cut off those discontent feelings and move them aside and arise the wholesome feelings, when you do that work, then over time, your gamma and the benefit is that those feelings will no longer arise. They will slowly, slowly, slowly extinguish. And this is where I talk about someone who's experiencing a lot of anger, will go down to frustration, irritation, annoyance, a slight little dislike, and then eventually you won't even have that anymore, right? So now, if when you get hungry, you get really angry and hostile to people, the more you understand impermanence, the more you train the mind to let it go through breathing mindfulness meditation, your mind might get frustrated when you get hungry. Then you'll kind of get irritated. Like over time, the next time it happens, ah, you'll get annoyed. Uh, then you know, a couple months later, ah, I kind of don't like that. I kind of dislike it. And then eventually, you'll just see it for what it is, which is just the body's hungry. It's got a little bit of pain. Let me just get some food and solve the problem. Oh, I can't get food for the next 30 minutes. Okay, well, I'll just let the body be painful. I'm not going to die because by the time you're enlightened, you, you don't fear death. You know you're not going to die, right? All right, well, I'm not going to die. So I'll just wait 30 minutes or an hour or whatever, and I'll get food when I need it. And then when I do, I'll just make sure I get some really good food and make sure I nourish the, the, the body. But discontentedness is not something that an enlightened mind is ever going to experience anymore. It's completely eradicated it. But one of the things you said there is, as an unenlightened mind going through this path, not to pretend like you're enlightened, I actually feel the opposite. You shouldn't go around telling people that you are enlightened, right? Like even an enlightened person doesn't go around telling people they're enlightened. But if you know what an enlightened being does, but you know you're not enlightened, the more and more you kind of function like an enlightened being, the more beneficial it can be for you. And this is what Gautama Buddha did with his ordained path. He set up the ordained path in a very structured way as if the person is already enlightened. And now they have to kind of train their mind on that path to kind of come more and more in line with, with the ordained path. So if you know that an enlightened person doesn't experience discontentedness when they have hunger, that can be a good thing for you that when you experience hunger, yeah, pretend like you're enlightened and try to work really hard not to have discontentedness when you're hungry. Or if you know an enlightened being never feels discontentedness even when they haven't slept, you know, for the amount of time that they need or the amount of time they were thinking they would get, then yeah, fake it until you make it. But don't fake it in terms of telling people that you are enlightened, but just know like, okay, if I'm gonna be enlightened, I need to train my mind that I didn't get enough sleep last night, I need to get some more tonight, but I'm not gonna let that affect my speech and my actions today, and I'm gonna do the very best job that I can in order to maintain my presentness of mind, my awareness of mind, and treat everybody respectfully. That can be really beneficial to you to kind of move your practice closer and closer to the ideal, which would be to not experience discontentedness. So yeah, I think you can kind of 
pretend for yourself, not for anyone else, not that you're trying to show off for anyone else, but just pretend for yourself that you are enlightened and just keep moving your mind closer and closer to that. And that's one of the reasons why I start off this book in chapter three, explaining what enlightenment is. Because in order to attain enlightenment, you need to know what the goal is. The more clearly that you know what the goal is, the more readily you can move your mind in that direction. Where if you had no clue what enlightenment is, how would you ever move the mind in that direction? So that's why I often repeat over and over and over again. If there's one thing that students know is enlightenment is a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. I probably say it 20 times a day on all these different classes that I teach, all the different individual discussions that I have with students, because what I'm trying to do is ensure that all the students know what this enlightened mental state is so that you can more actively work towards it. So the more you understand the picture of what an enlightened mind is, then you can work in that direction. Got it. Thanks for clearing that up, David. Yeah, I think a bit of modeling and acting it out is really the best way to practice in, in a way, right? It's really how you kind of train the mind to actually do, do the thing, not just understand it. Yeah, and that's how a lot of people learn during Gautama Buddha's time because, you know, he was a Buddha, but everybody that was around during his lifetime didn't know he was a Buddha. 2,500 years later, we know he was a Buddha because there are so many people that have attained enlightenment during his lifetime and after his death. But during his lifetime, the only people that truly knew he was a Buddha were the people who were actually learning and studying with him and seeing the condition of their mind improving. He knew he was a Buddha. Those people, you know, if they knew how to identify Buddha, they might have known he was a Buddha. But the larger community didn't necessarily know he was a Buddha until he got further, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40 years into his teaching career, more and more thousands of people kept getting enlightenment. Then the word kept spreading and spreading and spreading. But one of the ways that people attained enlightenment through learning with him is not only did they learn his teachings, independently verify the truth, attain the wisdom to liberate the mind and operate through this new wisdom, but they also modeled his behavior. That's why he said, one who sees me sees the teachings. One who sees the teachings sees me. So what he basically was saying is, essentially, I'm practicing what I preach, is what he said. One who sees me sees the teachings. I'm practicing what I preach. So by people observing his conduct, by people observing the, the mental control and the discipline that he had for his mind, observing how he carries himself, the way that he walks, the way that he talks, the way that he interacts with people, how calm and peaceful his mind is, even when people disagree with him, even when people are hostile and aggressive and angry with him, he could be loving and kind and compassionate. He never had any discontentedness. He never had an ego that came out after he attained enlightenment. So people observed him and through observing his interactions, they could then model that in their own life. And that's one of the ways that they were able to get closer and closer to enlightenment because they could model his behavior. And this is also how here in Thailand, there's lots of people that know how to identify an enlightened being because 
here in Thailand, having had these teachings around for many, 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 many centuries, there's enlightened people in our community. And the more knowledge that's here, because they've been here for at least a thousand years, if not longer, we don't know an exact date of how long the teachings have been here, but somewhere between 800 to 1200 years, these people have been practicing these teachings. So people here in Thailand, they can observe somebody's conduct based on how they speak and how they conduct themselves and how they interact in public, how they think and how the type of things that they discuss and the things that they talk about, people can determine whether someone is truly enlightened or not. So that's why there's temples where people know the head monk at this temple is enlightened and everybody knows, like the whole community knows based on observing that monk himself didn't tell the community he's enlightened. That's not how this works. The Buddha actually prohibited his ordained practitioners from discussing their stage of enlightenment with lay people. So ordained practitioners aren't allowed based on their precepts to actually tell anybody that's in the household practitioners, the lay people in the community, they're not allowed to tell anyone that they're enlightened. But the lay people themselves, as they learn with an enlightened teacher, the more that they became enlightened, they know that this teacher is enlightened. Because if you're learning with a teacher and you're seeing that the condition of your mind is improving and it's gradually improving and they're helping you and guiding you on this path and you're noticing the improvements in the condition of your mind, then what they're teaching you is leading to the results that you're experiencing. So as people teach more and more and more and their students start to experience benefits, that's how people know, aha, this teacher is enlightened because when I'm learning with them and I'm experiencing the benefits, then what they're sharing with me is helping me. So therefore, they must be enlightened because I experience the changes in the mind the way that they're teaching me and I'm being guided to do. So here in Thailand, there's people that know who's enlightened and who's not. And there's people who are able to determine it. But we don't have a list of people anywhere. People don't go around, you know, kind of keeping track. But when you're out and about in public, if you know about enlightenment, you can see and observe people who are practicing the teachings really well. And there are certain temples that are set up where the lay people know that that lead monk, even though the lead monk never said, we know, okay, this guy or this girl or this person is enlightened, like people will generally kind of know. But we don't compare, we don't talk about it, we don't, this person's enlightened, that person's enlightened. It's not a big deal. It's just like, okay, this person's enlightened. So just like this person's role is to teach people how to attain enlightenment, this person's role is to collect garbage as a garbage collector. And this person's role is to provide massages. And this person's role is to be the prime minister of the country. Who is enlightened and who isn't enlightened isn't something that we go around and talk about. But the more that you understand enlightenment, you should be able to start observing the qualities of enlightenment in other people. And then when you see that, then you can model that and it can help your practice to support your practice and build it up more and more. Okay, thank you, David. We now have a question from Manal. Teacher David, 
It is said that a bond between mother to her child is so deep that a mother often feels sudden energy shifts in her child if they're in danger. Would carrying a baby for nine months in utero and birthing a baby carry certain unknown deeper attachment without understanding what it is and why it is there? So the answer to your question is yes, but let's clarify, okay? So oftentimes when a baby is born, the parents have attachment, right? Because remember, craving, desire, attachment is mental longing with a strong eagerness where the mind wants things to be a certain way or expects things to be a certain way. The mind is outwardly searching for satisfaction. So for a mother to have a child inside of its stomach, that child is essentially part of the physical body, right? And that baby grows and it shifts and it moves and you feed it and you think about it. And I mean, it's kind of part of your being. It's a separate being living inside the mother's stomach. And you know this better than I do, Manal. You've got children. But, you know, it's a separate being inside your body, but it's somewhat part of your body. And the mind forms a mental attachment from almost the time of conception, right? There's a oftentimes a mental attachment to the partner who conceived the child with you. But then once the child is inside, there's like this mental attachment because it becomes part of your body and you think and reflect and have all these aspirations for your children. And when the child comes out, there is a certain amount of mental attachment for most mothers, not all, right? And even fathers too. And this is there almost by design, right? Because that child really needs at least one, if not two individuals in its life to really care for it and really take care of it and ensure that it gets the guidance that it needs and in order to grow up and understand the world and be productive adult eventually. So this attachment that parents feel towards their children is almost by design, right? It needs to be there in order for the parents to have this bond and this interest to take care of the child. It forms almost from the time of conception or even when you're first getting to know your partner in some cases where a baby's been conceived that way. So there's been this gradual increase of craving, desire, attachment as you get closer and closer to the birth. But then once the baby's born, the mother really needs to practice, really needs to practice of learning how to practice unconditional true love. Because as long as the mother and the father has craving, desire, attachment, this mental longing with a strong eagerness, putting their wants and expectations on their children, it's going to lead to unwholesome results. There's going to be discontentedness between the parent and the child because the child isn't going to always do everything the parent wants it to do or expects it to do. So a very wise parent will ensure that they're working on this path to eliminate this mental longing with a strong eagerness, this craving, desire, attachment, and they instead guide their child. They help their child. They show their child the world rather than forcing it upon them based on their wants and expectations. Practicing unconditional true love where 
this child can do what it's going to do. It can make its own decisions. I will guide it. I will teach it. I will show it the world. But ultimately, the decisions are this child's. And I will be comfortable with whatever decisions it makes as its own being because those decisions that the child makes is its own gamma. So you've got to be, you know, especially in those early years, you got to provide a lot of guidance. But as the child ages, you got to learn to let go more and more and allow the child to find its own way in the world. And we know why this is there, as I was saying, is it's part of the way that us in human nature care for our children and make sure that they get what they need in the world. But this is why parents oftentimes will cry at graduations or cry at weddings, right? Weddings should be one of the most happiest occasions of your life with your child, but a lot of parents cry. Or even like when the child goes away to college, it should be happy, right? It should be like joyful, like, wow, they're going away to college. They're gonna go get some new knowledge. But parents oftentimes cry and they become sad, right? They become bored or lonely. That's because of the attachment. The parent still is attached. They have that craving, desire, attachment. The mind is holding on. It craves permanence. And now this impermanence where the child goes to college or the child gets married or what have you, the parent is causing the sadness, the anger or the the boredom or the loneliness when the child leaves the parents causing it themselves because of the craving desire attachment so the parents should really work on this and they'll find that their relationship with their children will be so much more rewarding because i'm sure all of us have experienced a parent who was trying to dictate or force us with their own expectations of what they wanted us to do or what they didn't want us to do And what do we usually do? We dig our feet in and we resist. And the more that the parent pushes, the more they try to force us, the more we dig our feet in and we resist. So what you've got to get good at in practicing these teachings as an enlightened being is learning how to guide your children, learning how to offer suggestions, learning how to encourage and support them with guidance rather than making them feel like you're forcing something upon them because as soon as you start trying to force something upon them that's when they're going to revolt and dig their feet in so getting really good at learning how to guide learning how to show them learning how to assist them but allow them to make their own decision that will create and breed a much more successful relationship between parents and children what role do our genetics play in karma Do they affect uh, where we're reborn, for example? Um, If we take half our DNA from our mother and half from our father, how does that impact our mind here and now and the kind of obstacles we might encounter in life? Okay, so we haven't talked about this yet. The physical body is what we call old gamma. So far, we've talked about wholesome gamma and we've talked about unwholesome gamma right? Wholesome gamma is from making wholesome decisions absent of greed, hatred, and delusion or craving anger and ignorance. Those are going to be wholesome decisions that lead to wholesome results. Unwholesome decisions are going to be based in craving anger and ignorance, a knowing of true reality, and it's going to lead to unwholesome results. Those are decisions that we're making in this life that are either wholesome 
or unwholesome. That's wholesome gamma or wholesome results or unwholesome gamma or unwholesome results from our decisions in this life. But this physical body is what we call old gamma. This physical body is gamma from our previous lives. So we went through all these different previous lives, cause and effect, cause and effect, cause and effect, one life to the next. And now parents come together. There's an egg in the mother's, which we had nothing to do with because our consciousness is somewhere else at this point. Father has a sperm. They come together, impregnate the sperm and the egg. That's two of the three criteria that are needed in order to create a living being. And then the third criteria is a consciousness. The consciousness comes. So now we've got all three criteria, egg, sperm, and consciousness. But that consciousness is arriving into a egg and a sperm that you had nothing to do with. It's old gamma. It's something that you're inheriting in this life from previous decisions. So whatever genetic makeup that you have at this point, whether it's your physical features or if you have some disability or some hereditary disease or something like this, this is all based on your decisions in your previous life. Okay, because the consciousness in this life hasn't yet started making any decisions yet. The only decision was in your previous life, just before this, you still had craving anger and ignorance. Therefore, you were reborn. Right. But then when you were reborn, the physical body is all old gamma. So if somebody is born blind or born deaf or born without a certain limb or born with a certain illness, hereditary illness, or, or if they have wonderful genes and they're just miraculously beautiful appearance and beautiful hair and beautiful skin complexion and, you know, really beautiful shape of body or whatever. This is all based on previous decisions of their previous life. Now, once the consciousness is in this life, it's in the womb with this egg and the sperm. Now the baby's born. And now if you choose to overeat, for example, and you become very obese, this is your gamma from decisions you've made in this life, right? But the physical body itself is all what we call old gamma. So genes or genetics are old gamma from your previous life. It's interesting. And going forward then, do our genes affect our rebirth potentially if we are reborn into our next lives? There's nothing about the physical body that determines rebirth. It's all about the mind. So if there's craving in the mind at the time of death, there's going to be rebirth. And that new rebirth is going to be based on the gamma in this life. So that's why if you learning and practicing these teachings for your entire life, and you never attain enlightenment. But let's just say you get the first or second stage and your life's pretty good. In the first or second stage, you're going to experience discontentedness occasionally, but not nothing like you did when you were in the unenlightened state. The first and second, even third stage of enlightenment, life is quite good. You're only experiencing an occasional discontentedness. But if you die in that first or second stage and you're reborn into a human life, you're going to be reborn in a much better destination than you were in this life. So that's part of the motivation and incentive to learn and practice these teachings in this life 
Sure, the goal is to attain enlightenment. That's what everybody's goal should be in this world and in this practice. But if for any reason you fall short of that, you're going to be better off in your next life and you'll experience a better off. And the reason why you might be in the condition that you're in right now, based on where you were born, based on the conditions that you were born in, in terms of the education that you have, the access to wealth, your appearance, it could be because you did have a human life in your past life and you did practice these teachings and that's why you are better off now than you were in your previous lives. So, for example, if you're born into a very rich, wealthy family, then that's something that you have easy access to food, shelter, water, medical supplies, clothing, things like this. That's based on your previous gamma, where beings who are not born into that same situation, that's based on their previous gamma. We don't look down on those beings. We don't judge those beings. In fact, we should have loving kindness and compassion. And this is where beings who are better off and who have more substantial living in this life and who are further along on the path, we should make every effort possible to help other beings. So if we see that there's people in our community or there's large communities like in Africa that are being suffering from famine and disease and poverty and things like this, um, not just Africa, but lots of places in the world, we as people who are on this path, who are gaining experience and who maybe were born off in a better situation can practice loving kindness and compassion by helping these other beings because these other beings are for the most part going around just trying to sustain their life they're just trying to provide food water shelter clothing maybe some medical services for themselves but their life is so preoccupied by just doing those things that they don't even have the time to even learn and practice these teachings at all. They're just constantly busy just trying to survive. And that's their gamma from their previous life. That's their decision. But out of loving kindness and compassion, we can kind of reach out to those people and to those communities and help them. And that's what I'm planning to do as these teachings continue to spread more and more and more, and people are making donations to me, I'm planning to use that money to help more and more because I don't need much money to sustain my life. I've brought my life down from the lifestyle that I used to live down to a very meager existence. I can survive off of a few hundred dollars a month now, the way that I've set up my life, where before I was spending thousands and thousands of dollars a month. So. As people start learning these teachings with me more and more and people donate money, I'm planning to use that to help people here in Thailand, people in Africa, people in other parts of the world that can use the help, not only for food, shelter, water, clothing, and medical supplies, but also figuring out ways to bring these teachings to those people. Because now the way that I'm teaching is anybody with an internet connection can learn and practice these teachings with me. But not everybody in the world has an internet connection right now. So there's ways that I can use the resources that are being donated to me based on the generosity that I'm showing in order to share the teachings. I can use just a little bit of that money as the years go on 
and then the money that's left over is use that to reach an audience of people that may otherwise not be able to learn and practice these teachings, but allowing them to choose to do it rather than me to go into their community and push it onto them, I would find ways to make myself available, let them know that these teachings are available, and if they choose to step forward and they're interested to learn, then I'd be here to help them, and I would have some resources to be able to do that with. Thank you, David. We have no more questions at the moment. Okay, so we've got about 30 minutes left of class, and our other topic is Buddhist chanting something that I've covered before. So if you've been learning with me, you've probably already learned the actual chants, but something that I've talked about before, but I haven't really kind of displayed in a way that you guys can maybe take a screenshot or take notes or something like that is the benefits of chanting. I've talked about this before. I've talked about the benefits of chanting, but I haven't really laid it out for you in this particular way. So since this is our third session of Buddhist chanting in this iteration of the group learning program, I created this little slide so that you can take notes if you want exactly what are the benefits of chanting the way that I see it. And you might actually have some other benefits that you've observed as well. When we actually chant, we're doing what the Buddha called set up mindfulness in front of you. As you meditate, one of the benefits of meditation is to develop awareness of mind or mindfulness. And mindfulness is highly important for you as part of this path because this path is all about purification of the mind. Well, how could you purify the mind and train it if you weren't aware of it? So the instructions that the Buddha gave that we should do prior to meditation is he said we should set up mindfulness in front of us. So essentially, start becoming aware of the mind even prior to meditation. Because in meditation, we're developing awareness of mind, but we kind of need to build up to that. So one of the things that learning the chants and actually doing the chants before meditation can do is it sets up mindfulness in front of you. It brings awareness of mind in front of you as you start preparing for meditation. And you may not choose to use chanting, you may choose to do something else, but this is one of the benefits of chanting, is that you will start to become aware of the mind prior to meditation. One of the other benefits is that it develops awareness of mind, concentration, and memory. So in order to actually learn the chants, you have to really develop your memory. It takes time and effort to learn and practice the chants in order to memorize them. And in doing so, each time you chant, you're honing your memory. That's the practice. You're practicing honing your memory. And by doing that with the chants and honing your memory, tuning that instrument of the mind, you will now be able to use that memory more and more in other parts of your life. But if you never exercise this muscle of the mind of developing memory for something like learning chants, then you're not gonna have it available to you when you're trying to do things like schoolwork or you're trying to remember something for your career, your profession, or any relationships that you're involved in. So this exercise, this practice of learning chants 
and then reciting them is a practice of exercising this memory and training the mind to learn and memorize things. You're also building your concentration because while you're chanting, you need to have a certain amount of concentration while you're actually chanting. So again, you're exercising the mind and developing concentration. You're also developing awareness of breath because one of the things that you need in meditation is you need not only awareness of mind, but you need awareness of breath. It's the breath that is our anchor. That's the thing that we fix our mind on and we bring the mind to the breath, cutting off our thoughts, our ideas and perceptions, training the mind to let those go and focus on the breath. Well, rather than just kind of plop down in meditation and start meditating, when you chant, you can start becoming aware of your breath. For example, when you're chanting, there's going to be various phrases that you use and then you're going to take breaths at certain periods. This can start bringing awareness of mind and awareness of breath. So when we start off with the first chant, it's always taking a nice deep breath. And then there's a breath. And then at the end of that phrase, you need to take another breath leading into the next phrase. So you start becoming aware of the breath that you need to take a breath on the inhale. And then when you're actually chanting, if you don't allow the breath to have some amount of control over the breath, then you're not going to be able to have enough breath for the actual chant. So if I took a deep breath even, and I let it all out, right? I'm not going to have enough breath to actually chant. So you have to have awareness of breath in order to chant and to chant beautifully. Anybody who's into singing, knows this for sure because a good singer has outstanding breath control that's one of the big things in singing is learning how to control the breath so even though chanting is not singing there's a certain amount of breath control that goes into chanting and what this does for you is it develops awareness of mind and you start cluing your mind into the breath and this is what you're going to do when you actually meditate itself. So rather than just come right in and plop down and meditate, we kind of use this as a way to ease the mind into meditation. It kind of becomes awareness of mind, developing this memory, building concentration, awareness of breath. And now we're kind of slowly relaxing the mind and kind of easing it into meditation through doing this chanting. And this becomes very beneficial for you because you're not just coming and plopping down and chanting. Through slowing the mind down and chanting, it then helps you in meditation. Because if you come in and you're actually planning to meditate and your mind is very active with lots of energy and you just try to meditate right away, your mind actually might be too active to actually get some real benefit and real depth out of your meditation. 
So when you chant, rather than Arahang Sama Samputasa, Arahang Sama Samputo Bhagawa, right? Instead of doing it really fast like that, you want to slow it down. And by slowing your chanting down, it's going to slow the mind down. And it's going to help to start relaxing and easing the mind. So when I first started chanting, however many years ago, I used to chant actually quite fast. And what I learned over the years is that it's better to slow the chants down because it actually slows the mind down. And this will help ease the mind into meditation. So if you notice all the chanting that I do, it's always got a certain pace, a certain tone to it, where it's, Arahang Samasamoto Pakawa, right? When I'm doing that, my mind is connected to the breath and I'm starting to slow everything down. If it was fast at all, I would start slowing the mind down and easing it into meditation, which is going to be beneficial once you get to the end of your chanting to actually start meditating. Then as you develop your mindfulness, your concentration, your memory, you get your breath going, you start slowing your mind down, easing it into meditation, now you're going to get a better and better audible sound. The sound of somebody's chants actually tells you what's going on in the mind. Just like if somebody speaks very harshly and aggressive with you, it tells you what's going on in the mind. There's ill will, there's hatred and anger in the mind because they're speaking very aggressive with you. So if you're noticing that your chants are improving and becoming more and more of a beautiful tone, not that you're going to have pride and ego about that, but if you're just noticing that the audible sound of your chants are improving, that shows that the condition of the mind is also improving because you're slowing the mind down. You're becoming more aware of the mind. You're developing this concentration in memory. You're developing awareness of breath. So therefore, the audible sound of your chanting is going to improve. And this can be really important for a beginner practitioner, even an advanced practitioner, not that we're comparing, but somebody who's just starting out, oftentimes the mind is very cluttered and there's lots of chatter. And it's hard for you to see that this meditation is actually improving the condition of the mind at all. But if you dedicate your time to this chanting practice, you have this audible sound that is cluing you in to the improvements of your practice. And that can be very motivating and encouraging for someone just starting out on this path to hear that, you know, two months ago, when I first introduced this chanting, you had no idea what it was, how to do it, what it was all about. And now two months later, you're noticing a difference. Or six months later, you're noticing a difference and you're slowly but surely noticing a difference in your chanting. Even now at this stage of my practice, I notice that when I chant at the beginning of meditation, then I do meditation. At the end, when I do chanting, it always sounds better. And that's because there's been a change in the mind. The mind's been trained in meditation. So not only does it show an audible sound of improvement from session to session that the mind is improving through the audible sound of your chanting, 
But even in one particular session, if you chant at the beginning and you chant at the end, you will typically notice a little bit of a difference from one to the other. If you listen back to some of the podcasts or videos that I've done where we've meditated and I've chanted at the beginning and then we meditated for 20, 30 minutes or what have you, and then I chanted at the end, you'll notice a difference. Although it might be subtle, there's a difference. You'll even notice a difference in the tone of my speaking. Like when I speak in these sessions at the beginning and then we do meditation, and then when we all come out of meditation, you'll notice, I noticed this when I edit the podcast, that the tone and the tempo and the way that I speak is very different after meditation. And that's one of the benefits. That's our kama from actually meditating. So this audible sound of chanting helps to show and indicate that you've actually improved your practice over a series of sessions, but also inside an individual session itself. And then the other thing that I usually say about chanting and one of the benefits is there's a certain amount of gratitude and appreciation and respect that needs to be cultivated in the mind in order to attain enlightenment. If you didn't have gratitude and appreciation, if you didn't have respect, you wouldn't be able to attain enlightenment as part of this path. You need to have appreciation, gratitude, and respect for all beings, for all people, right? Particularly people that are helping you in life. So your elders, your parents, your grandparents, your siblings, your friends, your colleagues, you need to have appreciation, gratitude, and respect. This is part of what an enlightened being is going to have. An enlightened being doesn't walk around being disrespectful. An enlightened being doesn't walk around lacking appreciation or lacking gratitude. An enlightened being is going to have appreciation, gratitude, and respect. So one of the things that you can use Buddhist chanting to do is to cultivate this appreciation, gratitude, and respect for the elders. And what I mean here by elders is starting with Gautama Buddha, for the last 2,500 years, these teachings have been handed down from person to person to person to person to person. Imagine how many different Four Noble Truths talks have happened over the last 2,500 years. Millions and billions of Four Noble Truths talks, Eightfold Path talks, Five Precept talks. Imagine how many people learned meditation. Imagine how many people progressed on this path to enlightenment. Imagine how many people have given some kind of donation of time, effort, energy, or resources to support these teachings and allow them to be handed down from person to person to person to person. Imagine how many people sat down looking at old texts that were maybe old and decrepit and then translating them or just copying them to new materials in order to preserve them for the next generation. The only reason why we have these teachings right now, 2,500 years later, is because there's this long chain of people, an enormous chain of people going back 2,500 years that have handed these teachings down one to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next. Many of you probably know 
there is no centralized organization for Gautama Buddha's teachings. There's no centralized organization that takes it as their responsibility to collect and organize these teachings and then disseminate them throughout the world. Gautama Buddha's teachings have only survived all this time because there's been person after person after person that has found these teachings to be beneficial. They offered time, effort, energy, and resources for those teachings to continue during their lifetime and after their lifetime. So there's this long chain of people that you and I are part of that have passed these teachings down for 2,500 years. Depending on how well we learn and practice these teachings and we maintain these teachings as part of the condition of our mind and the wisdom that we understand, the type of books that we leave behind, the type of audio recordings, the type of videos, the way that we not only internalize these teachings but also practice them and share them with others, how well we do that and how closely we stick to what it is that the Buddha actually taught is going to determine the condition of the teachings for future generations. We are only one link in this massive chain of people, but our link needs to be really crystal clear. Our link needs to be very strong, needs to be very thick so it can support lots and lots of generations in the future. So I take it upon myself as my own responsibility as a practitioner and as a teacher to ensure that I keep what I practice and teach as close to what the Buddha taught as utterly possible and that I only share those teachings into the world for more and more people to benefit from them, not only during my lifetime, but after my lifetime as well. And I'm also sharing these resources in a way through books and audio recordings and other things that can be used not only during my lifetime, but afterwards as well. So each of us have this responsibility, I feel, as a practitioner to learn and practice these teachings as close to what Gautama Buddha taught as possible so that future generations will have the purity of that wisdom in which to liberate their mind as well. Well, for us to have attained these teachings right now at this point in time in history, there's 2,500 years of people doing that because otherwise the teachings that you're learning right now that are improving the condition of your mind and you know that through practicing these teachings, you know that they're the Buddha's teachings or else they wouldn't be improving the condition of your mind. So for these 2,500 years going all the way back to the lifetime of the Buddha, he uttered these words during his lifetime and they carried forward for 2,500 years until right now. So this chanting for me is a way of respecting all of that work, all of that time, effort, energy, and resources. I will never know all those people over the 2,500 years that ever dedicated their life to doing this. I will never be able to personally thank them and look them in the eye. However, my way of doing that every day is through the chanting, is when I chant, I put a lot of intention and effort into it as a way of honoring and respecting these people and showing gratitude and appreciation for all the wisdom that has been handed down for all these years. And this appreciation, gratitude, and respect is a good, wholesome quality to cultivate in the mind 
because now not only do you have that for the people in the past, but you can have it for people right now. You can have that gratitude, appreciation, respect for people in your life right now and start practicing that with the people in your life. And that's going to create wholesome results for you. And it's going to help people after us as well. So that's one of the reasons why I include this respect and gratitude for elders as part of one of the benefits for chanting, because by you practicing that for the elders, you're going to more likely to bring it into your daily life among the people that you're around right now. And then lastly, the thing that I will share about chanting, or some people call these mantras, there is no magical, mystical benefits associated with chanting. Some people will give you some special chant that only they know, or only their lineage knows, or only their school knows, or only this one teacher happens to know, and it's some special chant that's going to have some beneficial result. That's not true. There is no words that you can utter that's going to do things like extend your life, right? There's people in the world that will share that with you, that if you just chant this chant every day, it'll extend your life. Or if you just chant this chant every day, it will eliminate unwholesome karma. Or if you just chant this chant every day, you will get your wife back or your partner back or your husband back. Or if you just chant this chant every day, you're going to be wealthy. Or if you just chant this chant every day, you're going to get a good rebirth in your next rebirth. Or they even say, if you just chant this chant every day, you will attain enlightenment. There's all these different variations that you will hear out there. And this is not true. This is not true reality. Because as you probably know now, studying the Buddhist teachings, that in order to attain enlightenment, it's a gradual path of training the mind to gain wisdom and moving the mind towards this enlightened mental state through your intentions, speech, actions, and other things. There's no special chant that is going to instantly create right intentions in the mind. There's no chant that's going to create right speech or right action, right? There's nothing like that. And you should understand gamma even well enough at this point to understand that there's no chant that's going to immediately dissolve all unwholesome gamma. And one of the reasons why you know that's true is that if I went out and murdered somebody and the police were coming to look for me, right? I murdered somebody. So I created unwholesome gamma and the police are coming to look for me. Well, if it's true that I can dissolve unwholesome gamma by chanting, that means all I should have to do is chant and I'm not going to go to jail, right? And all I have to do is chant and I'm not going to feel guilty and shameful about the person I just killed. And this is how you can independently verify the teachings for yourself. If it's true that all I need to do is chant and it's going to extend my life, then that means in the community of people who are doing this chanting that say it's going to extend their life, that means there should be a bunch of 125, 150, 200 year old people sitting around, right? Wink, wink. Because if it's the chanting that's going to extend everybody's life, 
then there should be a bunch of 200-year-old people sitting around. But we don't see that. And that's how we know that if somebody tells us, just chant this, and this thing is going to come true, this beneficial thing is going to happen, we know it's not true, or else we would see the results of it. If all we need to do is chant, and we will get enlightened, okay, well, where are all the enlightened people that chanted, and now they're enlightened? Where are they? I don't see them. So it's important that you understand that chanting by itself has no inherent magical or mystical benefits associated with it. The benefits that you're going to experience are those that I just talked about, where you develop awareness of mind, you gain concentration and memory, awareness of breath, you slow down the mind, relax the mind, and ease it in the meditation. You have this audible indication to improve your practice and hearing the improvements in your practice. And you can cultivate this respect and gratitude and appreciation for the elders, which then comes into your daily life and practicing it with people around you. So that is the benefit for me in chanting. That's what I've noticed. That's what I've experienced. With all of that said, there are people in the world that are enlightened that don't chant. So chanting is not a requirement of enlightenment. It's not a requirement. There's nowhere on the Buddhist path that says you need to chant to attain enlightenment. And if you observe enlightened people and you know that someone's enlightened, you can talk to people and you can ask them about their practice and you'll meet people who are enlightened who don't chant. So if somebody shares with you that chanting is required to dissolve unwholesome gamma, or chanting is required in order to attain enlightenment, it's just not true. It's not part of the path. However, if you do choose to incorporate it because it is something that we do as part of Buddhist teachings, you can notice these benefits. And if you would like to develop a chanting practice and observe these benefits, then go for it. And you will observe over the course of weeks and months and years how these benefits and maybe others that you experience will be realized as part of your chanting practice. But if you do this for a period of time and it's just not something that you enjoy or you think that it's helping you or benefiting you, leave it to the side. Don't practice it stay on the core path, which is the Eightfold Path that the Buddha taught. That's the path that leads to enlightenment. And if you notice from what I talked about here, the aspects of chanting that I see benefits in connect over to the path because part of the path is right mindfulness and right concentration. Pretty much everything that we talked about here is all about right mindfulness and right concentration. That's where I see chanting plugging into the path and benefiting me on the path. But there's other ways to do meditation that don't involve chanting. So not everybody needs chanting as a way to attain enlightenment. But it's there for you if you would like to do it. So I'd like to just pause here and see if there's any questions or anything you guys would like to add to the discussion about chanting. Thanks for that, David. That's a really helpful summary of the benefits of chanting. 
not just at the start of meditation to set up mindfulness in front of us and develop awareness of the breath, but also coming out of meditation, such as noticing the change and noticing the change in the sound and using that as an indication of improvements to practice. And one thing I've noticed is that by chanting at the end of meditation, it seems as though that actually helps my meditation because if I am aware that I'm not going to chant at the end, I just get up and carry on. It's almost too much of a step. And it's like the mind is less inclined to go deep into meditation if it knows it doesn't have a, a step out of it. Uh, I don't know if that's something you've maybe experienced as well. So, so whereas with knowing there's chanting at the end, it provides a way just to ease the mind back out of meditation. It seems to actually help the meditation itself uh, be more beneficial if, if I know that there's going to be a chance at the end. Yeah, I agree with that, Max. It's kind of like this buffer, right? Like you've got your everyday life, you're going around doing things, whatever it is, and then you've got meditation. And the chanting is kind of like this buffer to move you from this kind of going around everyday life to kind of ease into meditation. But then it's also that buffer on the backside to kind of ease you out of meditation as well and kind of bring the mind back to, you know, whatever you're going to do that day rather than just deep in meditation. So I absolutely agree with that. That's part of the benefit of chanting on the backside of meditation. But again, with that said, not everybody who attains enlightenment is going to do chanting and you don't need to. But if you experience these benefits and you like those benefits and you want to cultivate these benefits, then this is something that you can use as a way to do that. Thank you, David. We have no more questions. Okay. Well, what I'll do then based on the time is just kind of share the chance with you without really necessarily going through them because there's been other class sessions where I've actually taught these chants. And there's plenty of recordings that you can refer back to either in the podcast, the YouTube channel, or on Facebook where you can sit with those recordings and actually hear me teaching you how to do these chants. So the first one is the triple gem or triple jewel. This is the one that starts out with Arahang Samma Samputasa. This one is the first chant that we typically do or that I typically do. And this Pali chanting that we do in the Pali language, it's a similar chant across all Theravada Buddhist practitioners. So whatever temple you're in, whether it's in America, Thailand, Sri Lanka, India, Cambodia, Laos, you know, Vietnam, wherever you are, if they're chanting in the Theravada tradition, they're going to be using these Pali chants. So one of the beauties about this, and I should probably add this to the benefits list, is that when you go around to different venues and different temples and different settings, you can actually benefit from having the ability to go right into any community. Even you have never been to that temple before. If you learn this Pali chanting, you can move right into chanting right alongside of everybody else. And that's a really nice thing that you can be part of this community. Having never been a part of the community before, you can just join into any temple and start chanting these Pali chants because Whenever there's some event at a Theravada temple, whether it's meditation or some holiday that they're celebrating or something like that, they will typically start off with this first chant. And if you know this, then you can join in with all the practitioners 
and chant. And then this chant is also very common as well. This one is the Natmo Tassa. The Natmo Tassa is also a very common chant. Oftentimes people will start off learning just this one first, get very proficient with it, then move into the one before this, which is the Arahang Samputasa. But you can also learn them all at one time. This chant is just repeated three times over and over and over. And again, I teach this in other videos and podcasts about how to actually do this. So you can listen to one of those and learn how to do it. And then the third one that I do is called the Iti Piso. This one is kind of more of like an intermediate chant. It's not quite a beginner chant. It's not quite an advanced chant, but it has a lot more syllables as part of it. So some people just learn all three of these chants at one time. Some people like to kind of take one at a time and learn them. That's how I did it. I learned the Namotasa first. Then after I got proficiency with that, I learned the Arahang Samma Samputasa. After I got proficiency with those two, I moved into the ETPSO and got proficiency with that. Learning the translations can be really helpful so that you put some meaning behind the words, that it's not just words, but they're actually meaning behind the actual words that you're chanting. So that can really help your practice as well. So based on the interest of time, I would like to just kind of pause here, end here, see if there's any questions and just kind of direct you to other resources where I've already taught these chants. In three weeks from now, we'll go through and learn these chants again. And any students that have been learning these, I can help you and coach you either in class or privately to learn these better and better if you're working on a chanting practice. But in terms of today's class, we don't quite have enough time to go into actually learning these, but I already have done that in other classes. And I feel like the discussion we had today was very beneficial as opposed to, you know, maybe doing chanting again like we have in the past. So are there any questions on any of these? We have a question from Deborah. Do you need to learn all of the chants to gain benefits or would you achieve the same benefit from just one? You can attain benefit from just one chant. What I noticed, um, I timed myself a few times. Actually, I didn't time myself. I looked on the podcast. How long does it take me to actually chant these chants? It takes two and a half minutes, it looks like, for me to chant all three of these chants. And that's that nice little buffer to ease the mind in and ease the mind out. And it works really well for me. And as Max was explaining, you know, he's noticed the benefit as well. Whereas if you only chanted one chant, uh, you wouldn't have as much time to develop that easing the mind in and easing the mind out. So, you know, I think that there is some benefit in learning all three because you've got a longer period of time. You've got more to remember. You're going to focus and hone your concentration more and more. But it's going to take time, right? It took me, gosh, I don't even know how many years to learn all three of these chants. I mean, I was busy as a business person and trying to learn these chants at the same time, but it took me more than a few years to learn all of these chants and chant them the way that I chant them today. So remember, it's a life practice. So if you're chanting just one of these now, and that's what you feel good, and that's what you feel proficient at, then do that and do that for a while. Enjoy that and get the benefits from it. But then when you're looking to expand your practice and you want to add a little bit more, 
then add another one. And that can be after a couple of months or six months or a year, wherever it fits in for you. If you're busy learning the AFO path and the five precepts and that's where you'd rather spend your time right now, then do that, right? That's where this is an independent practice. Your teacher is your guide. I'm pointing the way and showing you the direction towards enlightenment, but it's up to you to decide where am I going to spend my time? And only you know how much work, how much family time, how much private time you have to be able to devote in different areas. So you decide whether you would like to do just one and do that for a while and expand it or not. You know, do you need to be focused on the Eightfold Path, the five precepts? Where is your time most wisely spent? Where do you need the most help right now in your practice? Maybe it's right speech. Maybe it's right action. Maybe you're working on eliminating some cravings and you're on this independent journey working your way towards enlightenment. And then I'm your guide that you can reach out and get help with as you need help. Thank you, David. We have no more questions. Okay. So if that's the case, then I will just wish you guys a very wonderful week. I am off to go do some other teaching in another venue online. And I suggest for you guys to continue to learn about chanting and of course to continue to study this chapter nine that we're in for this week. Remember chapter 10 is gonna start on Sunday, which is what is merit. So we'll be going into that chapter on Sunday. And then next Wednesday, we're gonna be doing breathing mindfulness meditation again. So maintain your breathing mindfulness meditation practice, build that up more and more and more. If you need to add in loving kindness meditation, be sure to add that in. If chanting is helping you and you're noticing some benefit, then do that as part of your meditation practice, but just stay dedicated to that meditation practice each day where you're meditating at least once, twice, or three times a day, and you're moving the mind through this training closer and closer to this enlightened mental state. So thank you guys for joining, and I'll see you guys at our next class, which will be Sunday at nine o'clock Thai time. Thank you very much. Sawadikap. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.